Thanks again for being here. Just want to give you a quick, quick update for, from Tiffin before we dive in to our text this morning. And that, that is, I'd just like to ask you to keep praying. We're still working on that final inspection, so please pray for that. That didn't happen. One time we thought it was going to happen last Tuesday. We didn't have enough stuff done. Didn't quite happen. We're hoping that might happen this week. So keep praying for that. We're just looking for that final inspection so we can blast off in ministry and, and hit some of the deadlines. We got two key series that we're doing as we launch, and then we'll have a key series we do for the launch. And this is one of those. This is the first one in that series of three, and it's called Made for More. Made for More. And that's, that's what we want everyone to see, that, that as believers, we were made for more. We were made for a different life. We have a purpose to serve God. We also today are revealing a new motto, a new purpose statement for our church. And we, we did some work on that. We think we've come up with something that really describes the process that we try to lead people through to become believers. It has four Ds. And so I want you to focus in. We're going to want everybody to know this and be able to say this back. So are you ready? Yeah, that probably will not cut it, so I need, to, I need you to dial in, buckle up, dial in tight, all right? We're going to do this, and I'm gonna, there's going to be a test, all right? So we're going to make this happen, all right? Here it is, unique to our church. Here it is. We want to, dis- we want to help people discover truth, decide on Jesus, demonstrate change, and deploy for others. We believe this is the natural progression for a Christian. First, we discover truth. And how do you know you've discovered truth? When you decide on Jesus. Well, how do you know if you've decided on Jesus? When you demonstrate change in your life because Jesus changes us from the inside out. Well, how do we know we've demonstrated change? When you deploy for others. When you do for other people. All right, so are you ready? Four D's. Are you ready? You're going to say this with me, right? First, de- very good. All right, second, third, fourth. Man, you have this better than, or de- oh, yeah, right. Okay, maybe you don't have it so well, whatever. All right, so today we're talking about discovering truth. And deciding on Jesus. And it's in one of my favorite passages we're in today. It's John chapter 9. John chapter 9, which is page 1070 if you're using one of our Bibles on on chair rack in front of you. We're going to go through this whole chapter, so you might as well just grab your device or a Bible and read along. Jump in. See what God has to say. We'll also have it on the screen. But uh, we're talking about discovering truth and deciding on Jesus And so this is the story of Jesus healing a blind man. And it's packed with truth. And we're going to start John 9, verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, It is neither that this man sinned nor his parents but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, when Jesus answers like that, you might think, ah, 
It's not the answer I was looking for. I don't really understand that. You're going to understand that before we're done with this passage, what Jesus is saying there. We're talking about discovering truth. And then are we seeing truth or are we blind to truth? And then deciding on Jesus. So discovering truth. So the, this passage begins. Jesus and his disciples are walking through the streets of Jerusalem. The disciples see this man whom they know is born blind, blind from birth. And so they ask Jesus a theological question, which is really just a version of the why question that we all ask when it comes to suffering. So they see suffering, and just like people do today, they, why? But they're leading the witness, as it were. They're sort of giving it their opinion, and so they ask it this way. Why was this guy born blind? I mean, that's terrible, and especially terrible in the first century. Why was he born blind? Was it because he sinned? Okay, born blind. So that means, did he somehow offend God while he was in his mother's womb? Or did God know that he was going to sin in the future, so God caused him to be blind? Did he sin? Or, then the other explanation might be that his parents sinned, and so then his parents, because they sinned, God gave them a blind child. So which is it? They're wanting the answer to this theological question. And Jesus rejects the premise. Jesus says, neither. No, he was blind so that the works of God would be displayed. And we're going to find out more and more exactly what those works of God are. So Jesus rejects the premise. But it's the same way today. People ask the same question. Why did this happen? And, and here's the thing. In the first century especially, but a lot of times today, people think if, somebody are, if somebody's going through a lot of suffering, then they must have done something wrong. This is Job's friends, remember? When we see people go through suffering and we're like, well, why is God allowing that? Man, they must have really messed up somewhere. And, and here, here's the theological answer to that. All suffering is a result of sin in a general sense. And I'll explain what I mean. General sense. Meaning, before sin, there was no suffering. There was no disease, no suffering, no sin, no nothing. God created. It was all good. He created us and He created us good. He created us in His image. We had free will. But when we sinned, or specifically when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden... That was the fall. That brought sin into the world. That brought sin to every one of us. And now the world has been broken. It's not functioning exactly the way God intended it at creation. And so now there is sin, disease, illness, all these things, suffering, pain, that weren't there at the beginning as a result of our free will and bringing sin into the world. So all suffering is a result of sin in a general sense. But what the disciples were asking is about a specific sin. So anytime there's suffering, is that a result of some specific sin that somebody has done? And the theological answer to that is, no, not always, not usually. It can be. Specific suffering is normally not the result of specific sin. It's just a result of sin in a general sense. But sometimes it can be a natural consequence of a specific sin. Does that make sense? So that's the theological answer. And that's what they're asking that. And this is what Jesus is teaching them. But 
They want to discover truth. And, they're, and so they ask a theological question. But before the day's over, they're going to learn a lot more deeper truths than just that question of why on suffering. And let's pick it up in verse 6. When, when he had said this, so Jesus replies to them. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spit and applied the clay to his eyes, the blind man's, and said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, this is not the one who used to sit and beg. And others were saying, this is he. And still others were saying, nobody's like him. And he kept saying, hey, I'm the one. So they were saying to him, how then were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man who's called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. And so I went away and washed and I received sight. And they said to him, where is he? And he said, I don't know. And so think about this now. So they're the, Jesus and the disciples are having a theological question. It's about a guy sitting near them. And then Jesus spits on the ground, makes some mud out of the dirt and spit, and puts it on the guy's eye. Not a lot of us would appreciate this. Spreading mud, on, the guy's not asking for it. We don't, know if Je, we don't have any record that Jesus says, hey, I'm going to put this mud made from my spit on your eyes, but actually this is going to be a good thing for you. No, we don't, you know, he's probably going, whoa, 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 what's going on here? And then Jesus says, go to the pool of Siloam, and, and we don't know how far that was because we don't know exactly where this is, but it doesn't sound like it's right there. So this blind guy gets up with mud on his face, and then he feels his way to the pool of Siloam, which he may have known where that is. I mean, he had surely heard of it. It's a famous pool in Jerusalem. He goes there. He washes the mud off of his face, and he can see. And so then he comes back. And then his neighbors are like, whoa, you're the guy. And so there's this big turmoil that causes a huge issue in his neighborhood, the people who knew him the best, and they're just like, whoa, you're the guy, yeah, this can't be happening. And, and then they realize, whoa, you, you've been blind from birth, now you can see this is a God thing. God must be up to something. This has got to be some sort of a sign from God. And so they say, we, we better take you to the religious leaders. And so that's what they do. They take him to the Pharisees. And Pharisees are a group of religious leaders in the first century, Jewish leaders, who were experts in the law, but they had a fatal flaw. And the fatal flaw is they were so intent on following the law, they had to make the law into something they could actually do and feel good about. And the way they did that is they added a bunch of oral tradition of how you keep the law onto the law that God gave Moses, which we have for us in Exodus, for example. So the law's there, but then they piled on all this tradition on how that works. And so the, the deal is, we're going to find out, this happens on a Sabbath day, and so there's actually a law in the Ten Commandments. We keep the Sabbath holy. That's why we come to church on Sunday, although that's Saturday then. And, and so, but, but rather what they have done is they've turned this into a list of rules 
to talk about in minute detail all the little things that you can and cannot do on a Sabbath day that might constitute the word work. So you're not supposed to work, you're supposed to rest. So then they come up with hundreds of things and, and how that's work or not work in, in fine detail, which you're going to find out. So that's what a Pharisee is. Verse 13, we'll continue. So they brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. And then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes and I wash and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, well, this man's not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, well, how can a man who's a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him? Since he opened your eyes. And he said, well, he's a prophet. And then the, the Jews then did not believe it of him. That he had been blind and he had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight. And they question, he questioned them, saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? His parents answered them and said, we, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we don't know. Or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said he is, he is of his own age. Ask him. So a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Then he answered, Whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? And they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he's from. And the man answered and said to them, Well, here's an amazing thing, that you don't know where he's from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears them. Since the beginning of time, it's never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were born entirely in sins and you are teaching us. So they put him out meaning they threw him out of the synagogue, which was a big deal in first century culture. He could not go to the synagogue anymore, be a part of that society. And notice, the Pharisees keep asking, how did he do it? How, how, how? And the reason they're focused on how he did it is because they're looking for some way that Jesus violated the law. But Jesus didn't violate the law, but he did violate some of the oral traditions that the Pharisees had wrongly attached to the law. And, and there were basically three of those. Number one, he healed on the Sabbath day. The Pharisees would say, well, healing, that, that, that's work. 
And so that's a violation of what God said. Strike one. And then they would say, oh, you're saying he made clay. He spit, he got some dirt, he made clay out of it. Oh, well, that's like kneading bread. That's something that you cannot do. So that's, that's work. Making a little mud, that's work. So that's violation number two. Oh, and then he applied the mud on the guy's face. Well, you're not supposed to be doing that kind of stuff on the Sabbath day. That's strike three. So they come up with three ways Jesus violated their oral tradition that they had attached to the law of God. And so he's a sinner. He's a sinner. Can't be his disciple. And ironically, as this plays out, as, as truth is discovered, as truth is revealed, we notice that the seeing are blinded to the truth in this story. And ironically, the blind is seeing the truth. So the Pharisees who claim to understand truth in Scripture, they're the, they're the experts in the law. They're the, ones, they, they're the ones that know their Bible. They've got it down. And they're hearing all this and they're going, nah. Uh, they reject the obvious... Even the neighbors are going, this has got to be a sign from God. And the Pharisees are going, no, this guy can't be from God. Later, Jesus points out their spiritual blindness. You see, the Pharisees are moral, but they've developed this system where they can sort of do these things and be okay with God without much change on the inside. And, and people do the same thing today. I'm convinced this is one of the biggest issues today. That people learn about God and they especially, especially focus on God's love. And then rather than sticking very closely to how God has revealed himself as a God of justice and righteousness and love, they just focus on the love. And then they hear all these people have different thoughts about God and then, then they kind of overplay denominations and the differences there. And so a bunch of, and maybe a bunch of people right in this room, you start kind of developing your own opinion of God. And, and what you do is at some point you separate from the truth and then you just think of God as the way you think God is. And usually that involves that God's kind of okay with you. Even though you're doing some stuff that you shouldn't be doing. But it's kind of okay because God's this way and God loves me and God's like my granddad. You know, he's always saying good job, good job, but would never punish me in any way. And we kind of just think this way of God and, and we're deceiving ourselves because we're not focusing on how God revealed himself to be but how we want God to be and then we really don't live for God he's just a little bit of an add-on to our life our life is not oriented to God it's oriented to us and God's in our corner going yay ironically the seeing are blinded to the truth here but also notice the blind seeing truth. The blind man not only receives physical sight, so he's healed, but something better than that happens to him. And we see that working in his life all through the story. What we see is all of a sudden he starts seeing more and more spiritually. He starts seeing the truth. He starts perceiving truth after he received his physical sight He's perceiving truth, spiritual truth. And we see that how the story plays out. I mean, in verse 11, hey, who did this to you? And he's like, well, the man, the man they call Jesus. 
He healed me. And then later in verse 17, and you see him processing, he's going toe-to-toe with these religious leaders, and you see him processing about how this must have happened and who Jesus must be all through this. Verse 17, later they ask, well, who do you say Jesus says Jesus is? He healed your eyes, and he says, well, he's got to be a prophet. And then later, after being asked again, he starts pushing back, exposing their bias. Why are you asking all these questions? Do you want to become his disciple? He's being sarcastic. He knows they're just finding out how they can charge Jesus with wrongdoing. And he pushes back. He sort of defends Jesus. That's in verse 27. And then in verse 33, he, he argues toe-to-toe. He's an uneducated man. He's just a guy that's been sitting on the side of the road his entire life, basically. And he goes toe-to-toe with the best religious minds in the city. And then he says, he starts arguing logically with them, saying, well, if he wasn't from God, then how did he do this? And then they, they can't answer him, and so they attack his character, and they throw him out of the synagogue, which was a serious thing in the first century. He stood up to the opposition. And the question is, do you do that? Do I? Do we stand up? Here, this guy's not even a believer yet. He's just recognizing some things. He's just connecting dots. And then he's willing to go toe-to-toe against the Pharisees. And then he pays a huge price for that. Kicked out of the synagogue. That has all kinds of ramifications for who can deal with him, who can touch him, who will give him money so he can survive. All that stuff. He lays it all on the line. Pays the price. Do you? And I know some of you are saying, well, Kevin, I'm not really hanging around people that are trashing Jesus. I'm hanging around believers who think about Jesus the same way I do. Well, Maybe you need to get out more. There are people who don't know Jesus all over the place. And God's called us to be the light, the salt of the earth, to impact people for him, to point people to him, to help people see him. We we live in a country where we're not physically persecuted, but it's going to get worse. And it's already started that way. Christians are mocked and ridiculed. You, can, you can't attack any religion except for Christianity. Open game. I'm not, not calling on you to be a Facebook warrior. You know. It's okay to stand up for Jesus. But we need to do that kind of in a humble way, with respect. That's what Peter would say. Give an answer. Do it with respect. Because why? Because we're trying to win them, not alienate them, not embarrass them, not make them look like an idiot. And so sometimes, yeah, we need to respond. And we're also realizing that other people might be being influenced by the, by the string of conversation that's happening. Sometimes it might be more appropriate just to go with the private message. And sometimes it might be more appropriate to go with the public thing. But the goal has to be to win them. To influence them. To win the people that that are looking at it and influence them. Not just blast people, you know, be careful. Once we discover truth, then we need to decide on Jesus. 
Not just that Jesus is a great guy. Not just that I want to be on Jesus' side. Not just that I believe Jesus existed. Not just because I believe Jesus is God. No, decide on him means, we mean follow him with your life. I, I love John 9, but really, and I know the story well. It's one of my favorite stories in scripture. One of my favorite chapters. But reading it about a week ago, something struck me. It's this next verse, verse 35. And Jesus heard that they had put him out. And finding him, he said, do you believe, do you believe in the Son of Man? And it struck me, because, and I know this story, and I didn't forget this or anything, but it just struck me how, okay, so Jesus heals this guy, then Jesus kind of is off the scene, then all of a sudden this, he comes back seeing, the neighborhood's in an uproar, they, they take him to the Pharisees, then there's a big controversy, then they're blasting him, this guy steps up, goes toe-to-toe with the Pharisees, ends up kicked out of the synagogue, pays a price. But then we don't know exactly how much time will last, but pretty soon Jesus circles around. He hears that the guy's been kicked out of the synagogue. This is going to affect this man. And so Jesus finds him. Jesus comes to him and finds him. And then he asks him this huge question. Do you believe in the Son of Man? He's saying, do you believe in me? The Son of Man, this is a term that Daniel used for the coming Messiah, had all kinds of messianic Overtone, so, but it was kind of short of saying God that he can't be accused of that. And so that's why Jesus used this term for a while. He says, you believe in the Son of Man. And in the Greek, it's a little more pronounced. The you here is also used with a verb. And so it has a double emphasis. It's like, you, do you believe in the Son of Man? In face of the opposition, Jesus said, do you, you believe And then he answered, verse 36, do I believe? Well, he answered, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have both seen him. That's new, right? You have both seen him, and he's the one talking with you. Jesus said, I'm right here in the next verse, verse 38. And he said, Lord, I believe. And... He worshipped him. And we see, hey, we read this. Hey, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. We don't think much about that. This is an amazing. This is a Jewish man. No, he's Jewish. He's put out of the synagogue. Jewish man. For a Jewish man to say, I worship to somebody standing next to him, to another person. A Jewish man who believes God is one and God is transcendent and God cannot be, nobody can see God. And he worships him. We, we misunderstand the word worship. Here, this is the only time in Scripture before Christ's resurrection where anybody worships Jesus. One time, right here, this guy. He worshiped him. We misunderstand the word today. The word means literally to prostrate oneself, to be face down, stretched out, face down in reverence to somebody. That's worship. And it came to mean then living a life purposely submitted to God. That's how we worship God. We think of worship a lot of times as singing. That's, a, that's praising God. That's, uh, we can worship God that way. But worship's way bigger than that. Worship is purposely, singularly, 
dedicating your life to God, all phases, every day, purposely submitting your life to God. And then all of a sudden, when he worships him, we see the works of God that Jesus was saying. Remember at the very beginning, Jesus says, no, he's not born because of this sin or that sin. He's born so the works of God could be displayed. Well, now we've seen two huge works of God. First of all, this guy has received his sight. And that's caused an uproar in the city. That's just spreading. But secondly, even more important, he's received salvation, spiritual, eternal salvation, like many of us have, way better than physical sight. He's become a believer. He's seen the truth. He's acted on the truth. He's worshipped Jesus. He's willing to pay the price. Here's why this is significant. There's actually another healing that Jesus did before this one. This is John 9. If you go back to John 5, Jesus does another healing. It's another guy who needs physical healing, and he's by a pool. Here's what happens. Jesus is walking through, same thing with his disciples. They're by the pool of Bethesda, and he sees another guy who's paralyzed. And the guy's there next to the pool, and the guy thinks that... If the waters kind of ripple, the first guy in will, will get some measure of healing. And some people believe that, so they hung around the pool. And then if the waters ever stirred, they would jump in, hoping to get healed. That was kind of what they were doing. And so this guy, he's there. He's laying next to the pool, but he's paralyzed. So he's never the first guy in. It's only the first guy in that gets healed, apparently, so they say. So, but that's what he believes, so he's there. And Jesus sees this guy and says to him, do you want to be well? The guy says, yeah. And then he goes into this long explanation. But what's happening is, you know, I believe I could be well if I could get into this pool and these waters ripple and just some legend that they had back then. But, you know, I can't, I'm paralyzed and everybody else beats me to it that I have other issues, but they can move. And so they always beat me, so it's not working out. And Jesus kind of ignores all that and just says, hey, grab that cushion you're sitting on, stand up, and walk. And he does. He walks. And then same thing. He, this happened on the Sabbath day. So he's walking and some Pharisees see him. And they're like, whoa! What are you doing carrying around a cushion on the Sabbath day? That's work. You can't do that. That's against our list of our traditions. You can't do that. And then this guy... Kind of just blames, he doesn't even know who Jesus is. Hey, well, the guy who told me, who healed me, and, and I'm walking around, that guy told me to do it. Don't blame me, that guy's fault. And they say, well, who was that? And he says, I, I, I don't know. I don't know who he was. And then some time passes. We don't know how long. And Jesus circles back to this guy. And he says to him something very different, though. He finds this guy in the temple. It's kind of like in church. And then Jesus goes up to him and says this. You need to stop sinning. Or something worse is going to happen to you than being paralyzed. Now, we don't know what happened between Jesus healing him or, you know, what. But apparently, whatever issues this guy had in his life, Jesus didn't impact those issues. He just kept on doing life. He was walking, but it didn't really change him from the inside. 
And Jesus warns him. And then you know what the guy does? The guy then goes off to the religious leader and says, hey, found out the guy's name. It's Jesus. He's over there. We're going, man, this guy is a jerk. You know. So you got two guys. Both were impacted by Jesus. Neither one of them asked Jesus. Jesus goes to them. They both are impacted by Jesus. They're both physically healed. But from everything we know, they reacted totally different to that. I mean, they liked Jesus. They benefited from Jesus. But one guy is committed to following Jesus, and one guy is committed to just going on and doing his life his normal way. And so Jesus is warning him. And my question is, which guy are you? Which guy are you? Remember when Jesus found him, where is he? He's in the temple. He's in church. And Jesus is saying, you're messing up. Something worse is going to happen to you unless you change your life. See, he knew Jesus. He liked Jesus, impacted by Jesus. but wasn't ready to orient his life around Jesus. And so, here's the deal. This is my greatest fear for all of us in this room. That you're, you like Jesus, you're good with Jesus. And you come to God's place, a church. But my biggest fear is that you really don't know him. He really hasn't impacted you. I mean, you would say you're a Christian, but there's really nothing in your life you're doing except for showing up at church that's dramatically changed that your only motivation was not family or just that it was good for you, it was just you did it because of Jesus. And that you're really not a Christian. This is what Jesus talked about. In Matthew 7, Jesus says, hey, the, 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 the way to eternal life, the gate is narrow. Few find it. And then later in that same chapter, he kind of explains that. He says, hey, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but those who do the will of the Father. I mean, he's, he just lays it out there. If you don't have evidence of being a believer, it doesn't matter what you say. If it's not showing up in your life, that's not being a Christian. You're lost. You're going to be eternally separated. And this is my, my greatest fear, is that people would come to grace. And here's what statistically happens. People come, this is just statistics. They come to church, and, and maybe they come for some amount of years or whatever, but then statistically, say three, four, five years from now, 25% of you will not be here. And it's not because you moved and started going to another Bible-believing church. It's you're not here because you've drifted away from Jesus. You've drifted away from church. You've drifted away from your real Christian friends. And you don't know him. 
That's what we see playing out here. Um, that's why we're trying to emphasize this, discover truth, decide on Jesus. If I were to ask you, when, when did you make a decision for Christ? When did God change your life? You know, probably 20, 25, 30%, 20, 30% of you. You know what your first indication that you would say? I've always known Jesus. I've always believed in Jesus. Nobody has always believed in Jesus. So if you're basing your eternal security on, I've always believed in Jesus, that's not true. That's not what the Bible's saying. We don't just always believe in Jesus and we're good. We have to discover truth that Jesus is the Son of God. But even that, even when we believe, oh, I believe Jesus exists. You can't deny it. No, his, no serious historian denies the life of Jesus of Nazareth who changed the world more than any other man. Everybody's got that. You can believe that and still not be a believer. You can believe that and believe that he had to be more than a man and still not be a believer. You can believe that and believe that he's God and still not be a believer. James is writing, hey, you demons believe in Jesus as God and they shudder. They're not, they're not believers. They're not Christians. You can believe those things, but you're not a true believer. You're not a real Christian until... Knowing those things, you act and you respond in faith with a desire to follow God in every area of your life. And then, how do you know? Because you will have demonstrated change. It will have shown up in areas of your life. You'll look back and say, I would have never done that. It's uncomfortable, it's costly, it's awkward. The only, it, it, the only reason I have started doing this or that or I did that is because I knew God wanted me to, even though I didn't want to. That's when we know we're a believer, when we demonstrate real change in our life. When we're not motivated by, oh, this will work out well for me. Oh, this will be good for our family to be moral. Oh, this will kind of, no, I'm only doing this because Jesus says to do it. That's what I want you to understand. And so I have a question for you. How do you know? Well, when you demonstrate change, when you look at things differently, when you treat people differently because God said to do it, not so they'll treat you good, just because when you help people that cannot help you back, when you change your priorities about who you're hanging around with, when you change your priorities on what you do on Sunday morning, when all of a sudden church and God's people and learning more about that he's your priority. When you change how you view money. When you change how you view how you use your time. When you start running all that through the grid of this is what God would want me to do. It's costly. It's not convenient. But it's what God wants me to do. When you demonstrate change like that, that's how you know. That's your evidence. That's why... Paul says, examine yourselves to the Corinthians. And so I'm going to ask you some questions. And I'm going to kind of categorize people. I know we hate categorizing people, putting people in a box. But this is just, we, we, we need to sort this out. 
So I got four categories. I want us to bow our heads because I don't want to embarrass anybody. This is not a, a God thing or a mystical thing or a spiritual thing I'm asking you about your heads. Right now I'm just asking you about your heads so you're not looking around so nobody's embarrassed. All right? So bow our heads. One of four categories. I want you to put yourself into one of these categories. First category. You're, you're sitting here this morning and you're saying, I, after hearing all this, I'm a believer I know I was made for more. I have no doubt. I'm not continuing my life after encountering Jesus and doing my own thing. My life has been radically changed. I see evidence of it. I know I'm a believer. If that's you, heads bowed, I would like you to raise your hand. I know I'm a Christian. Thank you. Second category. I've always thought I was a Christian. But I hear a sermon like this, or you know, I'm looking at what you're looking at, I'm seeing this from a different angle, and all of a sudden I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not as sure. I, I was sure when I came in, and all of a sudden now I've been to church and I'm not so sure anymore. If that's you, just raise your hand. Thanks for your honesty. Thank you. All over. Thanks. And then third category. And it's not that I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure I've missed something. Because, yeah, I call myself a Christian. I come to church. But I think I might be more like the other guy. I'm not living like I was made for more. I'm sort of just doing my own thing, but now I have Jesus in my pocket. And I feel good about that. But changing the trajectory of my life, doing things that I wouldn't want to do only because I know Jesus wants me, I don't have a lot of that going on, and I'm pretty sure maybe I'm not a believer. If that's you... I want you to raise your hand. I'm not, I, I, don't, I don't think I'm there yet, but I want to be. If that's you, raise, raise your hand. And then last, just, just so we're covering everybody. Some say, yeah, I'm not a, I'm not a Christian. I don't even want to be a Christian. You know, I, I get you. I, I'm only here for some other reasons or, you know, I, I'm still just figuring it out. I'm just finding out. So at this point, I'm not sure I even want to be a Christian. Is that you? You can raise your hand. Don't want to leave anybody out. Okay, if you were in those middle categories, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And by the way, there's no set of words that makes you a believer. It's when we sincerely place our belief, our trust, our faith in Jesus. But it's not just mental assent. It's not just, oh, I know this as a fact. It's I want to follow this with my life. And so I'm going to lead you in a prayer, but it's not the prayer. You just need to make this prayer your prayer, and it needs to express your newfound faith and your desire to follow him, that you want God to come in and change you. Something like this, right now, before God, no better time. Express something like this to God. You can do it silently. He, he knows. Father in heaven, I understand that I'm a sinner. And, and I've heard, you know, I know that my sin alienates me from a righteous God and not only that you're just and so I deserve separation from you just like everyone else because I'm a sinner but God I also know that you love me and you allowed your son Jesus to come and live a perfect life and voluntarily give his life to pay my price for sin and so I'm putting my trust in Jesus but also as I do that I'm asking you to come into my life and change me and help me to follow you in every area I'm yours Thanks for loving me. In Christ's name, amen. Heads bowed.
if you tried to get that right today and just sincerely pray and ask God for forgiveness with the intention of following him like you've never followed him before, if that's new for you, I'd like you to just, I'd like to know that. I'd like you to just show me your hand just so I can say, I'm not going to embarrass you. I would just like to know just, yeah, that's me. I, I prayed that prayer more sincerely than I think I've ever prayed that before. Several hands. Thank you. Thank you very much. Let's, let's stand together. That's one response I wanted to talk about. There's one more. Tim is going to lead us in a closing song. And, and here's, my, here's what I think may be going on in some of your hearts. I think some of you, you're rock solid that you know you're a believer and, and your life has been changed. But you also know that you've drifted from Jesus in an area here or there. And I don't want to close the service without giving you an opportunity to make that right. To bring you to another time of repentance. Where you can say, okay, God, I admit I've drifted. I've drifted. I, I know I'm a believer, but I've drifted in this specific area of my life. I want you to come while Tim's singing. I want you to come, just kneel down here at the steps in front of here and just make that right. Don't leave without making that right, without repenting that area before him. That you can walk out of here with a clean conscience saying, I want to follow you in every single area of my life. Invitation's open for you, Christian.